All right. Hey, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, did everyone sort of go to the Andy Jesse keynote? How, how many people went? How many people saw it live stream? Wow, about half of the crowd. That's amazing. Um, it, it was a great keynote. Uh, it, we'll talk a little bit about it as well. So um, thank you, everyone, for coming to this session. So we're going to talk a lot about Salesforce Heroku and AWS, the broad partnership, uh, what we're doing together. We have an amazing customer, Experian, uh, who's going to share a little bit about their story. And then Kevin uh, from AWS is going to share about how uh, he's working with the Salesforce and AWS architecture together. Um, so, but this is the important stuff, right? Because this matters. Uh, two important things, actually. Uh, any tweet you do during the next hour with these two hashtags, you win, you stand a chance to win the drone, which I know Star Wars is about two weeks away or something like that. Uh, this stuff is cool. Um, I haven't played with it. I kind of want to win it, but I'm not allowed to enter. So uh, please tweet, have fun, and win. And then uh, hopefully Brian uh, handed out some cards. We have a Salesforce party tonight. Uh, feel free to come by the Mandalay Bay. It's going to be fun. We have the House of Blues. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing uh, on Salesforce as well as uh, attend a fun, fun party. So let's get started. Uh, my name is Rahul Awasthi. I'm the director of platform marketing at Salesforce. And the Salesforce platform, in fact, is a lot more than CRM. And most people, even at our booth, uh, we have a lot of people come by and saying, oh, it's great. What is Salesforce doing at reInvent? Uh, we, we know you guys are CRM. In fact, we love it. We use it. But app development and building code, and we've heard of this thing, Heroku. Uh, so a lot of people are sort of questioning the basics, right? So the Salesforce platform in and of itself is, is very broad, uh, and Heroku is a piece of it. And um, we'll get into Heroku quickly, but let me sort of talk about just how uh, broad the partnership is. So uh, there's a few companies that Salesforce acquired over a few years. Uh, Heroku was one of them 10 years ago. Uh, Heroku was started. Uh, Salesforce IoT solutions are built on AWS. Crux, Quip, Einstein, Metamind, IQ. There's a lot of incredible companies that have built amazing solutions on AWS. They've been acquired by Salesforce. So what are we doing with them? We're taking these amazing solutions and making our core services better. So if you've heard of the usual like sales cloud, service cloud, marketing cloud, how does that get engaged, how do you do better customer service, how do you do better sales, all of that is feeding the main uh, Salesforce core. But beyond that, it's also opening up the whole opportunity where we realize is uh, a lot of the generic services that people are building internally at Salesforce and using Salesforce services can be used outside as well. Um, so I won't go through all of these, but you know, bunch of stuff happening just at the broader level with VPC peering. Uh, we did a private link announcement earlier today um, with Redshift, there's a whole analytics dashboard that you can use. Uh, IoT is being built on it. There's massive service cloud integration with Amazon Connect and a, and a lot more. Um, but fundamentally, I want to come back to something the CEO of Expedia said today, uh, which, is, which is very relevant. To, like Salesforce really thinks in that manner from day one. I love what he said. He said, you know, Expedia is this giant company, uh, and they're, they're singularly focused on the customer. And he also said something about, 2,000 deploys per day. Like their engineers are doing 2,000 continuous deploys per day. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what, what that means. But this is core to Salesforce as well. We're fundamentally thinking about our North Star is, you know, how can we think about the customer experience and make it better? Because not only just Expedia, no matter what you're doing, your customers, which is all of us, right? Whether it's a mobile app, whether it's your 
billing app or some HR app, if you're not delivering functionality that's at least six to eight months out, uh, people are already in their minds thinking, like, why doesn't this work like this? Why isn't the best experience on the best mobile app look like something that I'm using, whether internal to the company or this next thing that's come out? But especially relevant to this audience, we know what it takes to build that, right? We call it sort of this geology of IT. In a lot of ways, AWS, whether it's AWS data centers and Salesforce data centers, this is the underlying. People in this room get this, right? You think about, you're not just thinking about networks and firewalls, you're thinking about how do you take massive data, one app hitting 50 databases. What does that look like? Whether it's a graph database, relational database. Uh, how do integrations work? And how long does it take to integrate something? Uh, how do you hire the right developers? Where do you find the right developers? Uh, what developers want to work on different systems because what's relevant for their resume? Right? What's going to get them ahead as well? That's important. We think about that. And really, that feeds what we call the Salesforce platform. So if you look at the Salesforce platform, this is sort of the architecture slide. But on the left is pure SaaS. So this is like URL, gmail.com, URL, salescloud.com. Boom, you're started up going. You do very little, right? It's, it, just, it just works. And then towards the right, you start seeing people start doing customizations. So they've done that on the Lightning platform. And this is where you start thinking about it's less drag and drop, but you start doing some maybe basic code, whether it's Visual Force, whether it's Lightning, whether it's JavaScript. And then you move all the way to the right. Heroku, for example, this is completely built on AWS. And here you're saying you know, customers like Macy's, like Duffel, like Invisalign, like Toyota, a lot of these are Heroku customers. Heroku is built on AWS, but they're saying, we need to build our systems from scratch. We need an amazing custom experience. We need something that scales to millions of people. Uh, Financial Times is an amazing customer. We talk about them. Uh, they're thinking about, you know, when the Brexit thing happened, they're thinking about, oh, in the next few days, the hits to our websites are not going to be 10 million, 20 million. There's going to be 200 million people clicking on FT.com. What are the results of the, uh, of the vote? Uh, so that's built on Salesforce Heroku, which runs on AWS. So quick show of hands, who has uh, either heard of Heroku, is already building on Heroku? Wow, that's a pretty, pretty amazing, amazing. So we, you guys, we should, we should um, be, I can't do the survey quickly here. I'd love to understand what you're building on Heroku. But we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more. We stop, we'll have a Q&A. We can stop and learn a little bit more about that. Uh, I, s took a, I took a really bad uh, photograph of a tweet from uh, Monday. Uh, I think it was a partner keynote, and Andy Jassy came up, and he talked about this traditional MSP on the left and managed services MSP, the next generation on the right. And I kind of really liked it. it was, it's a bad image, but I love, the, the, love what, what he's talking about because Heroku is really doing everything that you see on the right already. They're, we're doing this today, right? We're not thinking hardware first. We're thinking software first. We're thinking CI, CD integration. We're thinking DevOps day one. We're thinking continuous integration. We're thinking continuous security. We're thinking distributed ops. And so I love the fact that he brought this up, like our next generation of MSPs really have to go in this direction. What made me really happy is, well, in many ways, Heroku's already there. We're there today. And many of you who use it kind of know that. So for folks who uh, might not know a little bit, I really call it the easy button. If you're moving to the cloud, and if you're starting to use AWS, Heroku makes your life a lot easier as a developer. You're worried less about configurations. Um, 
AWS at the bottom layer is an infrastructure as a service is incredible. Heroku is really thinking about how do you make that experience easy for developers and op uh, OpEx, right? Uh, it doesn't mean you can't build on raw AWS. A lot of people do. Uh, I don't know if anyone's counting the number of announcements that Andy did this morning. Uh, I lost track, right? How many products were announced? How many products were launched? Uh, it was Beanstalk has been there for a while. CodeStar was done. Today we had EKS, Container Service, and then um, Fargate, I believe. So there's a plethora of options, but what Heroku has singularly focused on for about 10 years is really how do you build on AWS really fast? And how do you get developers to build really fast? How do they do CI, CD really fast? And how do you give them an experience that they really love in languages they want to code in? They, they don't care if it's Java, PHP, Go, Ruby, Scala, right? How do I, no matter what language that is and what architecture, how do I get started fast? And so, yeah, we pretty much use everything AWS builds and offers. And we kind of, we have one of every, and we do more. Uh, it's 100% built on AWS. Uh, we're a managed service provider, like I said. But what are customers doing with it? So three ways to think about like the business side of Heroku, right? Uh, how do you build amazing apps? How do you extend your CRM? This is a unique proposition if you already have something in Salesforce. So if you have Salesforce CRM, where a lot of your data is sitting, you extend that very quickly through a very declarative way with Heroku Connect. And then how do you think about scale? We talk about auto-scaling. We'll show that quickly in a little demo, right? The notion of how do you not have to, I think the Expedia uh, CEO talked about this as well, right? Are you, someone sitting there with 2 a.m. pizza sort of notion, like this is coming, Black Friday's coming? Uh, no, I mean, as much as possible, we're thinking how do you auto-scale to what's coming? The notion of Black Friday, continues to go, you know, Cyber Wednesdays, Black Fridays, it lasts the entire holiday season now. If you're thinking it's only a couple of days, the game's changed. It's, it's, like, it's like a whole season of Black Fridays. Um, so things that make up Heroku. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, what, what our customers love is um, the basic runtime and operational experience on Heroku abstracts away EC2, S3, network configurations, VPC peerings, and things like that. But then ultimately what our customers are using is data services. So uh, Kafka as a service, whether it's multi-tenant or single-tenant, both are available on Heroku. And the deploys are, if anyone's tried to, has anyone tried to deploy a Kafka cluster or played with Kafka a little bit around here? A couple of people have. Uh, I don't know how, how much fun it is, how many scripts you've written. Uh, he's, he's, he's like, no, not fun, yeah. So um, that's the exact kind of pain point we're, we're thinking, like, how do you solve that, right? How do you get Kafka running really quickly? Um, and scale up and down, not have to pay a lot of, a lot of for Kafka consumption. You can do multi-tenant, which, uh, which is less costly, and uh, other single-tenant is more costly. But then there's Redis and Postgres. Uh, Heroku runs one of the largest Postgres instances on AWS today. Um, second thing is like Salesforce. So if you're connected to Salesforce, you're thinking about how to get the data in and out, how to expose that and take the data in Postgres and expose that to other things, Heroku Connect is this tool that's literally five clicks and it's done. Um, we think of enterprise needs, so HIPAA compliance, PCI compliance, what does that look like? How do you build apps? Uh, companies like Invisalign, how are they building apps that need HIPAA compliance, and what does that look like on building on AWS? Sure, you could go out and get a bunch of people working on HIPAA compliance. We've taken care of that. Um, and then DX is what we'll really touch on. Developer experience at Heroku is something that we think about very, very deeply. What does CI, CD look like? Can you use Travis and Jenkins and Bamboo and Circle and whatever tool you want? Of course you can. 
Um, we've also integrated it, and you can use Heroku CI. Um, and then there's a whole marketplace of elements, right? Uh, logging, and whether it's Splunk or Dynamo, or you know, the whole idea is that when I build an app, I'm going to next need some sort of like messaging and logging and trail or monitoring. How do I do that? Um, so I'll go through these really quickly, but um, private spaces is uh, this dedicated network isolated apps, if you need to run, they're run on, uh, on Heroku. So what happens is we create dedicated private networks and then we run them in isolated runtimes, so the common runtime as well as on the, on the private data services. What that lets you do is say, I need a specific better set of services, I can define restricted IP ranges, and then I can also region select. So by the way, Heroku runs in uh, six AWS regions, uh, Tokyo, Frankfurt, Oregon, um, Sydney, Dublin, and Virginia. Uh, so local locality, data locality, data residency is important to folks who are running on Heroku as well. Um, flow, I'll skip this. We'll actually go through a demo. This is uh, secure connections. Again, if you're thinking about data, how does it traverse? Is it going through the public internet? What data does it not need to go on the public internet? You're thinking about VPC peering. You're thinking about how do you engage and get that data out really quickly back and forth. Um, and then Heroku Connect is the fastest way, really, to get your data uh, from Salesforce into Postgres and back and forth. So, um, what, so 10 years ago when Heroku started, what is it really doing? A little bit under the covers here, right? So we're taking the base, base elements of AWS, and we're taking, um, we started doing containerization like 10 years ago. And we do container orchestration. And Kubernetes is amazing. It's come out. There's Cloud Foundry that's it's in the ecosystem. You heard about EKS today. Uh, we've been doing this for a while because we, again, think the battle and the value is not in container orchestration. It's amazing. It's important. Uh, is that fundamentally what your developers and your operation folks should be thinking about? So we took that. Uh, we enabled auto-scaling on it. We keep working with the new EC instances that come out. Uh, then we thought about languages. How do you? Heroku introduced the notion of build packs, right? How do you take something like whatever language you're building, quickly create a slug, and deploy that to production really quick? Uh, we talked about Postgres, one of the massive instances. You know, what does it mean to have that data store and have it scale? Um, Add-ons, this is the giant marketplace. Uh, connect for Salesforce, and then Enterprise Management Console. So fundamentally, if you think about it, like we've taken, we've built this sort of nice layer around AWS, so you don't have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, doesn't mean you can't. You can do that. And there are architectures where people do both. Um, this is a, just a little bit sort of a flow of what it looks like. So again, these are, this is, we create, our containers are called dynos. We support Docker as well, by the way. You can run Docker containers on Heroku. Uh, our containers are called dynos. We have a way to orchestrate them. We manage them. We deploy them. But you see sort of this little yellow extension on the left. You can still continue to use your Redshift, CloudFront, Dynamo, Elastic Cache, Lambda services the, the way you're, you've been doing it. So I want to shift a little bit quick to how you deploy on Heroku. Um, this is critical for us to think about, right? So if I'm just going to create a new app on Heroku, what does that look like? It's, this, is the, this is sort of the, our, our console, uh, the Heroku console. This is what it looks like. And you create a quick app in here. It's called AWS reInvent Demo. And you say, OK, I'm going to run in the US. I don't need a private space for this. I'm going to do a common runtime. 
And if you see here, um, it's integrated with, you can pick your code from GitHub, from Dropbox, and other options. So here, we're sort of going into the Git repo and just picking up, we're just, well, actually not even, this is like, we're just picking up the base Java code saying like, how do I get started? There's a Heroku Java started. So all I did, I picked up some base Java code. I said, wait for CI to pass before it deploys, as in integrated continuous integration with your code, and then just deploy that branch. So directly connected to your Git account, it deploys it. And what it's doing here is it detected that, oh, this is a Java app. So now it's building the build pack. It's getting the slug. And it's doing all the, it's provisioning the dynos. So underneath, it's going and figuring out what are the instances, EC2, what do I need? It's doing all the, uh, all the dependencies that your file that it detects that it needs. And the manifest, it picks up based on what's already defined. So the manifest is where you actually define the dependencies. And in about 15 seconds or so, you're like, okay, here. So here's my app. It's up and running. It's just a basic app. It says, hello world. Uh, it doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, but so what, what does it look like? So if you go into, if you look at the app and the resources, this is what your app is consuming, right? It's consuming some dynos. Again, abstraction for containers. And you can, let me pause here a little quickly. What you can do here is you can select. You can this is how you change up and down. You say, I want a medium performance or Excel or the different sizing, and you pay for them accordingly. And your billing is integrated at this as well, so you can see that. Um, the other thing you can do is auto-scaling. So here, you could scale them yourself, or you can enable auto-scaling, which basically says the way we do it is like, hey, my 95th percentile is about like 50 seconds or 500 milliseconds, I'm gonna define that. So when you see a load coming on, uh, try and meet that response time. We're looking at the response time as the, uh, as the parameter for, for figuring out the auto-scaling. And automatically, when the load comes in, configure those instances, configure those containers, spin them up, do what's needed so my load is met. And that's pretty much all you do as a developer in figuring out how you're going to scale it and how are you going to load. So you may have a load balancer ahead, but this is all you're think, doing as a developer in terms of scaling your apps and preparing it for, for volumes. Um, so that's kind of what the experience of Git master push looks like. It's super simple. Um, and then I'll jump a little bit into CI, CD, and then hand it over to, to Amit. The um, thing we think about really is, you know, people who write code are people. And I don't know how many people have done sort of like, you know, I'm gonna sit in a corner maybe 20 years ago, bang out some amazing code, push it to production, and it's gonna go live. It doesn't happen that anymore. Everything is, everything is in teams. And, you know, how you push code to production, should everyone be pushing, pushing code to production all the time? Should everyone be doing 2,000 deploys a day? Maybe not, right? So we think about teams and we think about process. Um, this is what it looks like when everyone tries to do I'm gonna push code to production, and when there's no process. And a lot of our customers actually have seen that. They've experienced this, that we thought we were doing CICD, but this is kind of what CICD is looking like. It's, it's a mess. What's the process around it? Uh, what are the permissions? How does that look? How do I assign permissions? My ops guys are fighting with my dev guys because there's no common understanding and common language. Um, so Heroku Teams is really sort of like putting a structure around that. Like, what is the gameplay? What happens? Who should have access to production? When should you deploy? How should it be completely integrated with Git, with Slack? If, you, if, you're, if you're doing a pull request, 
should someone have to sort of log into Git? No, maybe they can just get Slack notifications. So you have integration with Slack. Uh, with Heroku uh, chat ops, you can do things like just deploy to production and do pull requests directly from there. It's all about enabling team communication. That's fundamentally what uh, a ton of uh, CI, CD, like our sort of a thought process is beyond teams and people. So we're thinking, how do teams work together? What is their process? And how do we enable that all within the same dashboard? Um, so this is, this is primarily what we think of uh, in terms of pipelines, review apps, CI, release phase, and flow in teams enables, enables these pieces. I'd love to show you more, um, but I really think it's be more fun to hear from, this is our general pipeline, uh, you know, Heroku flow, this is what it looks like, create a branch, pull request, all the CI tests are run. Every time you create a pull request, a uh, you know, disposable app is created. The CI tests are automatically run on it. Every time you merge it, your pull request is merged, and your little app that you've created that's consuming resources is automatically killed and taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. The merge is done. And this is done at massive scale with large teams of developers. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over this and go over to Amit to tell us a little bit more about what they're doing at Experian. Uh, but we'll be here for Q&A and happy to answer any questions uh, during or after. So Amit, take it away. Thanks, Rahul. Hello, everyone. My name is Amit Agarwal. I'm a director of software development in the enterprise architecture team of Experian. So who we are? Experian, we are a leading global information services company, revenue of about $5 billion, 17,000 employees. We have offices in about 39 countries and clients in 80 countries. Our largest market is uh, US, Brazil, and UK. One thing you will notice here is we haven't mentioned the word credit bureau. I think most of the people in this room will know and recognize us as a credit bureau or a credit reporting agency. The reason why we don't have that is because we are more than a credit bureau. We, we definitely have a credit bureau in running in all these countries, but we have solutions in fraud detection, identity protection, vehicle identities, healthcare, dark web surveillance, and that's why you don't see us just as a credit reporting agency. This is my team, Global Platforms Development. What we do in the team is I'm part of a team which has three global platforms within Experian. One of them happens to be a credit bureau. We are running that platform in three countries, so we have our credit bureau running in Experian Australia, India, and Netherlands. Now, just a quick show of hand, has anybody here in this room applied for a car loan in the last three months? Rahul, I see one guy, Rahul, all right, thanks Rahul. So how long did it take? About two to three hours? Yeah, to it was pretty bad. All right, and were you made aware that as part of the car loan process, you'll be, there will be a credit pull? I'm sure there was some. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would imagine. I was asked to fill some information. All right, so they would have asked for your social security number and your deal at the max. Now let's imagine a place where there is no credit bureau. And I'm actually a living and breathing example of that. This was way back in 2000 in India when I applied for my first car loan. I submitted all my salary statements. Now, to verify whether my salary statements are genuine, they wanted to see my bank statements. From the bank statements, they figured out I have some credit, uh, credit cards as well. So now they wanted to see statements of my credit card accounts to make sure that I'm paying on time. After all said and done, I was finally told that they have all the needed documentation and my loan process will start moving forward. A week later, a gentleman showed up in my office 
to do physical verification. They wanted to make sure that what I have submitted in my salary documents, what I have shown in my bank statement is actually where I'm working at. So he literally showed up, a physical person showed up in my office. He talked to my receptionist, he talked to my HR people to confirm that I'm who I am and I'm actually working at that company. This is part of their due diligence process. Fine, I, I get it. Without any centralized credit bureau, you have to do that. A week later, the same gentleman showed up at my house now. He wanted to do another physical verification to confirm that where I'm showing I'm living is where I'm living. So he talked to my parents. He even went on to talk to my neighbors. And this was a very kind-hearted gentleman. He believed in give to get. And what that means is to get information from my neighbors, he started sharing information about me. So my neighbors knew more about the car and the model that I'm about to buy then I actually had the car. So that's how pervasive or intrusive that process was. Things have improved a lot since I moved here, but this is how it looks like in a country where you don't have a concept of credit bureau. A process that took Rahul about two to three hours took me three weeks to get approved for a loan in India. As I said, the team that I work for is the one that actually goes and builds credit bureaus for different countries at Experian. I'm gonna talk you through why I'm here. The reason I'm here is to share our experiences and our challenges with the last credit bureau application that we did. It had its own ups and downs, but had we had been running on Heroku, it would have been a totally different journey. So I'm take you through our recent build, credit bureau build that we did. It was a bureau transformation process. We were running not a legacy bureau, but a C platform based bureau in the country. The application was falling pretty much every day. Uh, we had issues in the application, and the simple solution that we always have to throw more infrastructure at the application, and it picks up pace, that wasn't working. No matter what amount of infrastructure we threw at it, it just wasn't responding. And to minimize impact to our clients, we actually had people working on 24-7 shifts, recycling one instance or the other every hour. That was our way of making sure that there is no impact to the client. So we came in, my team was called in, we started building a new credit bureau platform. Uh, it was a pretty much a textbook implementation, on time, on project, met all the performance criteria. We actually exceeded the performance criteria of what the business users stipulated. And then one night, we did the cutover. It wasn't a flash cutover from old to the new bureau, all this while, we were running the two bureaus for about two to three months, migrating clients from one bureau to the new one, making sure that the new bureau actually does what it's supposed to do. And based on the confidence that they got on the new bureau, the one that my team built, they finally decided now's the time to pull the plug from the old bureau. After a good healthy start, we started seeing some performance step. It happened on day two for a couple of minutes. And after that, the system recovered. We looked at a couple of logs, and since it was momentarily, we were too busy celebrating the launch, that we didn't pay much attention. The pattern then repeated again. And then the day after, and we knew we have a problem at our hand. We didn't have an option to go back to the old bureau since we have already pulled the plug. So the only thing we were stuck with now is the new bureau. There was no way out, we had to go all in. What we did then? So in experience speak, this is what we call a tiger team, which means 
pretty much every walk of life at Experian are getting involved in solving the problem from left to left, from left to right. We started looking at each layer of traffic from the moment we started, from the moment we received a client request till the time it hit our database and on the way back. We found the problem pretty quickly. So this is how our current infrastructure or our current architecture look like. Uh, application, database, doing read, write, and we had a DR center in a different location. Our database sync was happening to the DR location. Now, within a credit bureau, we have two main components. One component is what we call data ingestion, and the other one is the product delivery. Within data ingestion, we consume data from the banks, from your auto loans, from your mortgage on a monthly basis. This is where they are reporting how good you are doing on your uh, accounts. Now, this part of the company, or this component is very right intensive. It, it, and we optimize it to the level to suck up everything from the infrastructure we have. So our CPUs were burning across the board at about 80 to 80%, which was a deliberate decision. What happened was when the other side, which was the product delivery, which is when you go and apply for a credit loan and a credit report or a score is pulled, that part is read intensive. When the two things started coming together, that's when we had contention in the system. What we wanted was something like this. We wanted our writes to happen to one database, get synced up to the data center on, on the DR side, but at the same time, get into a new database which is read on standby. This is, we, we are using DB2, so this read on standby is a DB2 terminology. What that actually entails, what this picture shows is an easy thing, what that actually entails is, first we have to convince all the stakeholders that this is the right solution for the problem that we are facing. It's not an easy thing and experience to do just because of the infrastructure requirements. Once we convince the clients, we then have to put an order with our vendor to get an AIX box. Our DB2 runs on AIX box, so it's not that we can go to Fry's or Best Buy and get that box in. <laughs> Once we have that box in, we then have to get it provisioned, which means actually get it networked, get the database installed on that box, get schema installed on that box, get all the user's permissions installed on that box, and then get the sync done. The application change was simple. Making our product delivery system point to the read-on standby was simple because it's all configuration driven. But overall, here we are talking about two to three weeks of lag time. And if we are having a problem today, nobody has that much time to look at. And that's where we first felt the need that had we been on Heroku, it would have been a different preposition altogether. Heroku Postgres has the same concept called follows, followers, where you can have your primary and a followers databases done quickly. Now, there are a couple of plans, but if we were on Heroku, it would have taken us a couple of clicks to get that provisioning started. It would have taken, we are running about 10 to 12 terabytes of data, base, so it will take some time for the initial thing to happen. But in terms of our own action item, with a couple of clicks, we would have been there. It would have been up and ready. We didn't have that luxury. So what did we do? We took the most efficient way out. We also looked at the white spaces in our system, and we realized that all the CPU utilization that was happening 
was only between the hours of 8 in the morning till 8 in the night. And after that, our system was idling. Now, the data ingestion part, we control it at what speed we consume it. So we, for the moment, we shifted all our data ingestion load to the night and let our product delivery system, which was read intensive, run during the daytime so that we don't have issues. With that done, things stabilized. Our partners in India were happy. Our clients were happy. But that has its own problem. Now that things have stabilized, what do business do? They sign up more clients. They signed up more clients. So there was already a plan of signing up more clients, and we were expecting them to happen around Diwali time frame in India. It's a big festival in India. But what we didn't realize is uh, the cricket, the thing that we call religion in India. The cricket played a big part. We signed up new clients for IPL, which is the Indian Premier League, and we started seeing performance tips again. Here again, we wished we were running on Heroku Pass. I'll go back to the previous one. All right, so what was happening was, as part of our product delivery, we had made a deliberate decision of how big our JBoss instances would be, how many JBoss instances we will run. So we were running, we had two application servers, Linux boxes, and we were running two app instances on both boxes. So in total, we are talking about four application instances. We knew the limitation of, or the boundaries of our application, per se. So we controlled the number of concurrency that will hit our boxes. We also controlled how many threads for a concurrent request will respond within our own box. We knew what we had done. And the solution was simple. All we had to do was install a couple of more instances. The code was exactly the same. Our servers had the compute powers. Our server had the memory capacity in there. All that was needed was give me a couple of more JBoss instances. I'll put my application in there, and the problem will go away. Easy said than done. On Heroku, I could have done that with just this one single command from their CLI, or I could have gone to their dashboard and simply moved a slider to the right. And here goes my scalability. I, I have more instances. Within Experian, that means I have to first talk to my EC team to get the JBoss installed. I can't do it myself. As an application owner, I still don't have access to install JBoss instances. Once the instances are done, I have to change my uh, build scripts to now deploy to those new, new instances as well. Once all that is done, now I have to talk to my load balancing team so that they can start sending traffic to the new instances. And even before my load balancer team can start sending traffic to the new instances, I have to talk to my firewall team to open the port between the new instances and my load balancer. Now, what I can do here in five minutes, it took us overnight to do it. And in experience terms, that's at a breakneck speed. Doing it overnight was a big achievement in itself. But on Heroku, I could have done that with the click of button. So the net-net here is, if you look at it, is that we were making changes not when the business or the application wanted, but only when the infrastructure team supporting us was ready. They were not moving at the same pace as the application or the business wanted them to move. Now, so, so far we have talked about Heroku, Postgres, vertical, horizontal scaling, automatic load balancing, 
as well as uh, automated recycle. These are the technical features that got Heroku in the door for Experian, but these are not the reasons why they are staying with us or why we are staying with them and building our new credit bureau on Heroku. That's where, that's where the human element comes into picture. What we have found with Heroku is that we are working with pretty talented people and amazing customer service. No matter how small or big the problem is, we have always found the right people at Heroku to take care of our issues. Just recently, about a month or two back, we integrated Heroku with Okta. And my own VP was very surprised when I told him that it's a five-minute process. We are not used to five-minute processes. It's too good to be true, but it actually was. In five minutes, we were actually able to move Heroku to our own Okta, single sign-on. So that was pretty amazing. In five minutes, it was done. Out of all the people we, were, we had on Heroku, I think two of them had issues both of them from my team, and they had issues because of the switching that I was doing with them. But even Heroku came through to on that and then helped us figure it out. So quite a few lessons that we learned from that experience. Uh, the, the credit bureau I was talking about was having those challenges around 2015, 16. So we knew that the way we were doing things, we can't do that anymore. We had to change the way we were doing things. And that's where Heroku came in picture. We are now building, so the application was monolithic, needless to say, now we are building completely microservices-based architecture or applications. And then this is what our application looks like. It's a hybrid cloud where we have Heroku private spaces, where we are using third-party services, business services, product services, and then we are connecting to our on-prem data warehouse or on-prem data center through APIs, to from where we furnish the data services. We still haven't pushed our data onto cloud. We're still keeping it on-prem. But what you see here is from top to bottom, which means from cloud to data, to on-prem data center, from left to right, from UI, all the way up to data services, it's all microservices-based architecture now. Any, any questions? Does anyone? Feel, does it resonate to anyone? Yeah, go ahead. There is no such customer agreement, but I think if you will look to people on your right or left, one of you guys would have been impacted by what happened at a different credit bureau. Right, does that resonate to us? So we are not professing that we are cloud-first company. We want to build cloud-native application, but for us, security comes first. It's mainly for that reason that we want to host the data inside. Plus, some of the architecture that we use, which is mainly based on big data now, we are more comfortable doing that on-prem rather than on cloud. Does that mean we will never go to cloud with our data services? I don't want to say that, but we are not ready as a company to go there. Sure, so the gentleman here is asking about pain points we see with Heroku. So when Heroku first came in, I, I used it myself. I have my own app deployed on Heroku. It's a financial app. It does work for me. It doesn't work for anyone else yet. 
as a technology, Heroku was always there. Their solutions were always there. Where we found gaps was their maturity in serving big organizations. So when I log into my Heroku dashboard, that was the first issue. When I logged into my Heroku dashboard, I'll see all 50 applications that are getting done across different teams in Experian in one page. That 50 will become 500 pretty soon, and it becomes that dashboard becomes unmanageable. So we send our request, we give feedback to Heroku that give us something folder structure. Let me create teams within my own organization and help create apps within those teams. Now, typical response that you hear from vendors is, it's on our roadmap. And we heard that a lot from Heroku in the initial stages. Where it differed was they actually ended up delivering that. The second pain point we had was with Heroku Postgres. When we first looked at Heroku Postgres, they gave us just one user ID. That's the one user ID that my admins will use. That's the one user ID that my application will use. That's the one user ID that my production support team will use. It doesn't work that way in production. We need role-based access. Heroku didn't have that at that time, but again, they listened to our needs. They listened to what the market was saying, and now I believe they do have that. So they, they, they are listening to what people are saying, and they are incorporating that. And when they say it's actually on their roadmap, it does get delivered. I think with that, I'll hand it over to you, Kevin. Thank you. Well, it's afternoon now. Good afternoon, everyone. Is everyone enjoying reInvent so far? Does it already feel like Wednesday of next week? <laughs> I don't know, it feels like that for me. My voice has dropped a little bit since I've been here. Most of us, you know, you're talking and meeting people and saying your name and what you do in the midst of loud crowds and loud music. That's really all you're doing, and you're like, oh, I can't talk anymore. Um, I want to try and kind of bring this back around to how AWS and Heroku can can work for you, especially if you're a heavy Salesforce user or even a, a light Salesforce user. One of the, the biggest challenges is getting access to your Salesforce data, um, just customer data, lead data, prospect data, account data that you want to use maybe for some of your own applications. And there's some ways you can do that. You can have your own engineering team. Um, you can use force.com. You can use all the, all the tools that are available there, whether it's Java, Node, uh, various other libraries that you can use. Um, but what if you just kind of need to do something quick and dirty or you don't want to spin something up? There's actually a lightweight way to gain access to your Salesforce data uh, in less than about a half hour. And you can you actually get SQL access using Heroku. Um, so I'm going to kind of walk through this a little bit. Some of this, in fact, almost all of this I've already kind of got set up just for uh, time's sake. Uh, but what I've done here is I've gone into my Salesforce account and I've created two, two fields. Uh, this one called counter. Being really creative here, um, you can probably guess what that does. Um, and then I've got another one called Heroku ID. Um, what's important about this one is this is an external ID and it'll actually help uh, Heroku. When I show you, when I get over there, Heroku Connect 
we'll use this field to kind of keep everything synchronized between your Salesforce and, um, and Heroku. So this part's already done. So let's go ahead and bounce on over to Heroku. So I've logged in, got my little application here called Radiant Harbor. You guys come up with like some cool algorithms for doing, uh, doing names. I didn't have to name anything. It makes it look like I was being the creative one, but it wasn't. So, um, so let's just take a look at the application and what we've done here. So it's really, really, really simple to set this up. And although I've already done it, I just want to at least show you here. Um, I mean, you can literally just type in Postgres and you can add a Postgres database. You click on it, it's going to pop up a, a screen. I'm not going to add it uh, at this point, but you know, you just say provision. Bam, you've got a Postgres database. Super simple. Heroku Connect would be the next piece that you want to add. So your, your Heroku uh, database is going to be your SQL access to all the data that you're wanting access to. So what I've done here in my Heroku Connect is I've just taken that account object and I'll just kind of show you the mappings that I've done here. Um, so you can create a mapping right here if you want to to a new object. You just select the object if you want to and you can select the fields. But I'm just going to go right back to my account object. And we're going to take a look at the mapping here. And so I've selected a handful of fields that are of interest to me, um, primary, primarily my, uh, my unique uh, little counter field here, uh, the description, the name, just a handful of things. And it's automatically going to select the uh, Heroku ID because when you're setting up here right up top, um, I've got this set up that I want data to be synchronized back to the database. And on this side, I want the database to also sync to Salesforce. So the way I've got this set up right now is it's near real time. So it's using the streaming API. So when I make a change, um, it's within a couple of seconds, sometimes even less. Um, but it, it actually synchronizes back and forth. Really handy for important data that needs to be, needs to have immediate visibility. If you've got stuff that's just, you know, you know, somebody updates an account name, a lot of times you don't need that immediately, so you can do a polling method. And that's really the preferred method to, for performance reasons, but, you know, I'm kind of doing the cool way this time. So here's, um, that's pretty much what we have here for the mapping. Um, and, you know, I actually set this up right before the session, setting, <laughs> sitting up over here, because I had to move it from one account to another. And uh, really simple. So now that we've got that set up, and I technically have access to the SQL database, you know, I write a little small app. And uh, here's my application. I may have to, let me make this a little bit bigger so everyone can see. Any, uh, any programmers in here? Okay, no judging, okay? This is not, <laughs> I don't have any error checking in here. It's a quick and dirty. So, um, but here we go. We have a, um, a connection string that we go to our Postgres database, and you get this, the credentials pretty easy in there. Ideally, you'll want to set up an SSL certificate. Um, you'll want to set up a user for your database and go through all the, the security protocols. Um, but really, all this is doing is it's going through and using this Python script, it's just going through and uh, updating the counter and providing some information back. 
And, uh, and this is going to be my Lambda function. So let's go on over to AWS, and we can take a look at what we've done in here. So this is my subscriber. Don't worry about it. It's just I don't know why I named it that. But um, so I've already added it in here. Real simple. We've got our uh, same code that you just saw a minute ago. We can test to make sure that it actually does work. The test data is just real simple. It's just a JSON payload. So let's test it and make sure that it's actually functioning. Great. All right. We're ready to go. So next we want to create an API gateway endpoint so we can launch this Lambda function and really never even have to set up, uh, set up an EC2 instance, don't have to do really a whole lot of work, actually. So let's go to our API gateway. And I did a, a get method. And let's go in here. Has anyone set up an API gateway, Lambda? So you kind of know some of this stuff. Some of the API gateway stuff can be tricky, especially when it comes to using it across websites. Um, and it also depends on your framework. So you'll want to kind of get familiar with, with your frameworks and what the, what the options are. Some of them, um, you can actually run this enable cores right here, which is what I did. And it, it does probably about everything that most frameworks do uh, if you're using any kind of a JavaScript framework. Uh, occasionally, the one that I'm using, you have to add an additional header. And so I had to do that here under options and get. So just kind of a, a gotcha, just to make sure that you, you're clear on that. Um, but here in the integration request, this is where uh, everything really kind of happens. So this is where I've, I've told it this is my Lambda function right here. And we have a, a mapping that we want to take a look at. So we take the input params, which you would normally have as a query a string would be, you know, query parameter affiliate ID. So we want to make it, map it to a JSON uh, payload out from a, just a standard query string so that, because that's what we told it, it was expecting. And once you've set up kind of the core pieces here, then you can deploy it. And I haven't really made any changes, but we'll just do it anyway. And so now it's ready to be used, and we have our endpoint right here, which we can copy-paste and put into whatever else it is that we need. So how is this actually going to work? Let's, let's take a look here. Go back to Heroku. And let's take a look at our application. And we will open that up. So here's this beautiful, obviously built by a developer. Um, colors usually kind of uh, make designers kind of wince a little bit, but that's all right. Um, but the idea here, these are all listed out of, these are the, the accounts that I've got synchronized to my Heroku database. Um, so just going to increment this counter here, and it'll refresh the page, and there we go. We're at a one. So now the important piece, going back over to Salesforce, 
And we go into this account, same account. Let's take a look at the details and see what our counter looks like. Oh, cool. But how do we know I didn't cheat and do this ahead of time, right? So let's, uh, let's change this to 1001. And we'll save that. And then let's go back over to Heroku. There you go. So it's pretty fast. Synchronizes back and forth. It's a real quick and easy way. And you know, in the time that I've done this demo, I've kind of walked you through step-by-step uh, -step how to do it. Um, very simple to set up. And if you need, like I said, if you need polling access, you can do it, do it up to 10 minutes or, or more. Um, but this is, this is kind of how you can wrap a lot of these things and use your Heroku applications uh, with, with your AWS applications and services. So there's a real quick, and, and like uh, Rahul was talking about earlier, we uh, released uh, AWS Private Link, which is a great way to keep that traffic from going out over the internet and back in from Heroku into AWS and vice versa. You can now keep that that traffic private within AWS and never has to leave the AWS backbone. Um, and whenever you have, you're using private spaces, you can tell AWS which accounts have access to, uh, to those endpoints. Uh, so it's a real easy, nice way to secure your connections from really from Heroku or your other AWS services. And I guess that's about it. And you know, if anybody's, um, as far as a lot of you, I know a lot of you raised your hands using Heroku, and there's a lot of different other services out there, especially some that AWS has. One of the things you want to look at, and I get this question a lot, well, you know, should I use Heroku or should I use one of the AWS services? You know, what's the difference? Really, the difference is, is it depends on you, but a lot of times you log into maybe the AWS console, and if you're a developer and you're just not interested in the 80 other services that are right there on the home page, and you have to click and go to another one of our services that's similar to Heroku. You know, a lot of times it's a real quick and dirty, uh, a lot faster. I know I'm an AWS guy up here, you know, talking about Heroku, but they're my partner, and and they've got a good product. So you can you can get into Heroku, and get up and running with your code if you've already written your code in minutes does take a little bit longer with AWS. You do need to know a little bit more about infrastructure with AWS. We do have some other services like LightSail that are a little bit simpler, a little bit more contained. Um, but really, we've got a lot of good services, and Heroku, being one of our uh, partners, has an excellent offering that fits right within that. So it's not really a matter of this one versus this one. It's really a matter of you have an offering here Pick the one that works best for you. And I know a lot of our customers, just like Experian, uses Heroku for a lot of their production. So, but I want to turn it over to some Q&A. So the three of us are up here. Um, I know, Amit, you were asking some questions. Anybody has any more questions? Um, yes, it had. Yeah, it's a, uh, so the question was um, doing updates. Do you do uh, batch updates? Do you have to, can you just use a standard SQL client? And the answer is yes. You use a standard Postgres driver and uh, you have access to do whatever it is you need. And in fact, 
Um, Heroku Postgres is, uh, because it's managed by the Heroku team, uh, it is high performant and you don't have to get in there and tweak with any of the settings. So it's already set for you. Yes? I'm sorry? I'm sorry, I was still, still wasn't. <laughs> yes. That is a great question. Um, the question is, when you're using this connect, is it counting against your Salesforce API limits? And that's a great question I forgot to cover. Um, there is no limitation here. In fact, this is another really good benefit to using Heroku Connect because you don't run into those limits that you would normally if you're you know, if you have a, a per transaction update that you're doing, you can run out of your API uh, usage really quick. With Heroku Connect, it doesn't matter. You just use the database, and the database handles the synchronization back and forth. Did that answer the question? Perfect. Other questions? Um, it's, that depends a lot on, on the model. If you're using a streaming API, um, you're going to take a performant hit But um, if you're doing a large update. Um, but it's going to be over there just, it's going to immediately start doing those updates back and forth to, to Salesforce. Like, do we have an estimator, like, 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 no, no, there's not an estimate, there's not an estimate as far as, yeah, it doesn't say, hey, this will be complete in, you know, two minutes and three seconds or something like that. It doesn't tell you that, um, but it does just immediately start, so. Other questions? Yes. The, okay, so the question is, the, the, the question is why, why do this using Heroku Connect versus just doing it yourself and using AWS services? So AWS does not have any native connectors to Salesforce. Um, Heroku does. Uh, Heroku is, you know, it's owned by Salesforce, so it's kind of cool that they can say, here you go, here's the resources. Um, that's really the biggest benefit. Um, and you don't even have to, if, if all you're really doing, wanting to do is just get some quick and easy access to your Salesforce data programmatically, and you don't have an, an application that's required, that requires Heroku, or you don't need to use Heroku for that, um, that's okay. Because this application that I built and I showed you doesn't actually need the application front end. You can just create the application space, uh, do your Heroku Postgres and Heroku Connect, and never have a, a web front end for it at all. Yeah, and the only, just, sorry, yeah. the only thing I would add to that, just to the quick sort of the quick pitch. Uh, so Heroku is very developer focused. It continuously thinks about right. what is the developer experience, how does it look like, how does it fast, and we're not we're trying to think about. You don't need armies of DevOps folks managing this. You need maybe one half a person. That's the other advantage. You think about it because that, that is a common question. So we're running out of time. We can chat really quickly. Um, is John Summers in this room? Sitting right behind. John, you're the winner. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh,
Great. Well, we'll be down here asking, uh, answering more questions. I think we might get kicked out of the room so we can hang out outside and uh, do some Q&A as well. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.